0: Welcome to the Gerald Brooks Leadership Podcast, a deep dive into biblical leadership with pastor and author Dr. Gerald Brooks. Hi, this is Gerald Brooks. Thank you so much for joining me for another podcast. I'm absolutely thrilled to be able to dig into the lesson that we have today. I think it's going to affect you in so many positive ways. But before we begin, I want to remind you some upcoming events that are on the horizon. I think these are some of those must-be-at leadership moments. There are three of them. The first one's on February 20th in the Nashville area. It's north of Nashville. Great friend of mine, Michael Burnett. He's going to be a part of helping me do a roundtable. I want to encourage you to come. I know some of you that are used to listening to podcasts, you're just thinking, man, why do I need to be in the room? The reason you need to be in the room is that leadership is caught as much as it's taught. You can listen to leadership concepts, but when you're in the room, you feel it, you get it. So February 20th, then March 3rd in Orlando. I love this roundtable. A dear friend of mine has hosted it for years. It's a great group of people. I want you to come out. You're in the Florida area. This is a must moment. And then on March 10th in Albuquerque, New Mexico, again, uh, this roundtable's been going for literally years, and we've got a large group of individuals who come and participate, and we'd love to have you join us. So if you could go to my webpage, GeraldBrooksMinistries.com, if you would go to that webpage, you could sign up for Nashville, February 20th, Orlando, March 3rd, and then New Mexico, March 10th. Hey, today, I want to talk to you about the math of leadership, the math of leadership. I know that sort of throws some of you just that title because some of you are saying, man, I was never any good at math. I just wasn't good at math at all. But here's what math does math helps us to reach conclusions. See, if you know math, you know that when you're building a structure, you know how much weight-bearing wall you need. You know where the pillars are. You know where the cross beams need to be. You know where the suspension needs to be. Why? Because you can calculate based on the density, the mass, the weight, and you can begin to reach conclusions. Well, that's true also about leadership. If you understand the math of leadership, you can reach some conclusions, some very profound conclusions. And where we find the math of leadership is really the equation is summed up in John chapter 3 and verse 30. It's provided by John the Baptist. And it gives us clear insight into what effective leadership looks like. And if you're ever in doubt, the equation that you need to calculate, and it goes like this, that I must decrease that he might increase. And so the Bible tells us that for him to increase, we have to decrease. That is the math of leadership. Biblically, effective leadership requires less of us and more of him, we must decrease so that he can increase. Now, the truth of the matter is, is that uh, this math is just contrary to our natural instincts. See, we think that if something's going to be better, then. We need to put more into it. We think if something's going to be bigger, we've got to be bigger. But what the Bible tells us is the math of leadership is inverse to that, and that is when we get smaller, he gets bigger. When we begin to take the downside, he takes the upside, and what we know is that leadership requires us to learn the principles of decreasing so that he can increase. Now, what does this look like when we talk about that for him to increase, we must decrease? What in the world are we talking about? What is that look like? What does that seem like? Well, let me try to put it into a perspective for you. Jesus wants all of you. Jesus wants all of you. He doesn't want a little bit of you. He doesn't want some of you. He wants all of you. Now, let me just sort of illustrate when we say all, I mean all. He doesn't just want all of your upside. He wants all of your downside. He doesn't just want all of your yesterday. He wants all of your tomorrow. He doesn't want all of your skills. He wants all of the things that maybe you're profoundly bad in. Because here's the thing. Jesus wants all of you, and all of you includes your failures. All of you includes your failures. Now, why in the world would God want my failure? Why in the world would he want my failure? If you look at the Bible, they're just example after example of leaders who made mistakes and God took them and their failures and did something. You look at Moses and he was a guy who failed by killing somebody. Man, that's a pretty pronounced failure. You look at Paul. He was a man who persecuted the church. Pretty pronounced failure. You look at him and you see, but see, God wants all of us, even our failures. Why does he want our failures? Because God can do more with your failures than you can do with your successes. Let me say that again. This is important. God can do more with your failures than you can do with your successes. See, we try so hard to succeed that many times we fail. And because we're using success as sort of the standard, the operating mode for us, we look at that and say, well, I didn't succeed, but God says, I can do more with your failures than you could ever imagine. And I can do more with your failures even than when you think you're at your most successful. I know that to be true from my life. You know the story. The story's this. The first church that I ever pastored, I destroyed. It doesn't exist anymore. It was the destruction of that church, and I don't say it with any degree of glee. It was the destruction of that church that set about the foundation of the church that I pastor now. It set about the whole emphasis of what I do in ministry now, helping pastors. I wanted so badly to be able to engage with pastors on an honest level, but it didn't seem to be available to me. God took my worst moment and he turned it in to a better moment. Probably if there's any example of this, for some of you that are older like me, it would be Chuck Colson. For some of you that are young or maybe you're from around the world, you wouldn't know who Chuck Colson is. So let me give you just a, a tidbit of history. Uh, In the United States and the president during that period of time that Chuck Colson was around was Richard Nixon. He was the president of the United States. Um, Chuck Colson uh, was the attorney for the president. He was the one who represented the president on all legal advice and all legal uh, documentation. He was the individual that represented him. Now, Chuck Colson will make this statement. It's one that's literally out there, and you can listen to the audio where he said – that he had a problem, and that was he wanted to be the smartest person in the room. And because he was the smartest person in the room, he always assumed that he gave advice that was bad. In fact, he'll make this statement, I almost personally took down the presidency of the United States. I almost cratered the democracy because I had to be the smartest person in the room. And because of him, the Watergate cover-up happened, and that Watergate Cover up of people in immense power beginning to cover up something that had gone on, but Chuck Colson says this. He says, "I had all these degrees, I had all this recognition, but now I'm going to be convicted. I'm going to be sent to jail, and God's going to take my greatest failure and He's going to turn it into the largest success." Because right before he went to jail, he accepted Christ. In jail, he began to realize the need for prison ministry. And when he gets out, he begins to formulate one of the largest prison ministries to offer a plan of redemption for people who are behind bars. And he sets in motion some of the greatest revival that has ever happened in jail or out of jail. And it all started not with his success. It started with his failure. So when I say Jesus wants all of you, he wants all of you. He wants the good of you. He wants the bad of you. He wants the best of you. He wants the worst of you. He wants uh, your good days. He wants your bad days. He wants everything. If I can put it to you this way, Jesus isn't asking to be squeezed into your schedule. He's asking to be Lord over your time. Man, can I say that? If you're a leader like me, we need to hear that. It probably needs to be a bumper sticker. Jesus isn't asking to be squeezed into your schedule. He's asking to be Lord over your time. He's not asking you, hey, can you give me a few minutes this morning? I know in between all the meetings you've got going, all the planning sessions, all the events you've got on, uh, could you give me a few minutes? He's not asking for a few minutes of your time. He's asking to be Lord over your time. You may not feel like you have enough time, but here's the thing about the time you have. If He's Lord over it, it'll be the right time to do the right thing. See, Jesus isn't asking for your leftovers. He's asking for your life. He's asking for everything in your life. He's not asking for leftovers. You know how when you go to a restaurant, they look at you and they say, hey, do you want a doggy bag? Do you want to take any of this home? Uh, Jesus isn't asking for the little bit of leftovers, what you couldn't eat, what you couldn't do, and saying, hey, will you give that to me? Jesus is asking for all of you. He's asking for your failures. He's not asking for a little of your time. He's asking to be Lord over all your time. He isn't asking for your leftovers. He's asking for your life. The reality check is this. God wants to help you. And the way he helps you is this. He wants to take your life and he wants to put you in a place where you decrease, that he might increase, that you decrease, that he might increase. Now, let me give you a reality check. Let me sort of translate that in. Um, He wants your personality. Now, let's be honest. Some of you, you were born with that great big, everyone wants to be around you personality. I wasn't given that. In fact, if there was a line in heaven for personalities, I wouldn't have been in line for the personality that I got because I tend to be the person who goes inward versus outward, I tend to be the person who doesn't need a crowd but needs to be alone. I tend to be the person who doesn't need a whole lot of conversation but just needs a little bit of conversation. I tend to be the person who tends to be more reflective than anything else. And what I can tell you is that doesn't get you invited to parties. Some of you, your schedule is full because you're invited to parties. You have my personality. You have a whole lot of free time. Uh, nobody's inviting you to any parties because, man, you just don't have that personality that makes you the fun person. There's a lot of things people have described me as. They've described me as strategic. They've described me as an engineer. They've described me as driven, but no one's described me as fun. So for those of you that got that fun personality, yay you. I didn't get that. But even if you got that fun personality, here's what I want you to know. God wants to shape your personality. He wants all of you. Your personality wasn't given for your benefit. Your personality was given for his benefit. And God wants to shape it. And so there's things that I don't instinctively do. And I can just say, hey, I don't do that. But you know what? I have to learn to do that for Jesus. And there are things that you don't naturally do that Jesus is going to ask you to do. See, we have this idea. Well, we just do what we like. In fact, there's leadership books out there. They drive me crazy that basically, what is it that you love doing? What is it that you like doing? What is it? And that's what you're going to do. And I think, man, read the Bible. The Bible's about sacrifice. The Bible's about doing things you don't want to do, doing things that you don't think you can do, doing things that uh, no one dreamed you can do. Man, if you've fell into that leadership mode that they put in the world where it says, do the things you love, you're like, and do those things only, and that's when it's your highest, you'll miss a relationship with God. And so there's a book out there right now, man, and it just deals with this love and like kind of thing. But here's the deal. There are things that I'm not good at, God wants to shape me in. He wants to challenge me in. So God wants to shape my personality. He not only wants to shape my personality, he wants to discipline my temperament. See, I have a temperament. I have an overall aura of how I want to do. And so based on that aura, I have to be able to say, God, I'm willing you to not only shape my personality in ways that are beyond what I think it can be, but I'm wanting you to discipline my temperament. And then I'm wanting you to be Lord over my heart, the most sacred place of my life. So when we talk about how do I decrease that he might increase, I decrease by giving him my personality and saying, there's things that I just don't like, I don't want to do, but God, I'm willing for you to do those things. When it comes to my temperament, God, there's natural ways I react, but I'm willing you to discipline those things. And when it comes to my heart, God, I'm not going to offer you some of it. You get all of it because you're Lord. Now, I want to walk you through some keys for giving God more of you. How you begin to decrease in the sense that you let him increase in your life. Ten things. Number one, stay hungry. I think one of the things that we have to learn is that when we're hungry for God, that creates opportunity. That's what it says in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 6. Blessed are those that hunger and thirst. A lot of people have lost their hunger for God. I've just got to have you. I just need you. They've lost what David said in Psalm 63 and verse 1. Oh God, you are my God. Early will I seek you, my soul thirst. You've got to be thirsty for God. If God's really going to be the one who's going to be in charge of your life, then you have to stay hungry. You've got to be thirsty for him. You've got to long to be with him. You've got to desire to be with him. You have to stay hungry. Secondly, you have to challenge the comfort zone. All of us have a comfort zone. All of us have things that we're very, very comfortable in. we taught it before in psychology. They teach that the comfort zone is really formed by the width of the fear of failure and the fear of rejection. Uh, They say that uh, when a baby's born, they only have two fears in them. The fear of falling, you know how we like to throw those kids up in the air and catch them and say, we, that's not really, really the best thing to do because they have that fear of falling and the fear of loud noises. But what we know is that over time, when people begin to get older, they develop other fears. And one of those fears is failure. What if I do it and it doesn't work out? Another one's not only the fear of failure, but it's the fear of rejection. What if I do it and people don't like it? And they say the distance between those two things is your comfort zone. Well, you've got to be willing to challenge the comfort zone. You have to be willing to get comfortable being uncomfortable. So if you're going to be someone who's constantly uh, putting yourself in a position where God's going to be bigger, then you're going to have to stay hungry, and you're going to have to get comfortable being uncomfortable. Number three, you've got to hang out with people who provoke you. I've said this before. uh, We like to hang out with people who make us feel good. Now, I'm not talking about people who belittle you, but we do need to hang out with people who say, not only are you good, but you could be better. Who are the people that provoke you to be better? Who are the people who make you think bigger, do bigger, accomplish bigger? Whoever those people are, I'm telling you, it doesn't matter where they're at. Pay the money to get in the room with them because if they make you think, if they drive you uh, to be better than what you are, you need them. The Bible says we provoke one another to good works. Who are those people who provoke you to good works? I like to tell people, uh, God sends me to provoke people to good works. But if they don't want the good works, they just get to be provoked. So if you're going to be the person who's really going to uh, present where God can be bigger in your life, then you're going to have to stay hungry. You're going to have to challenge the comfort zone. You're going to have to hang out with people who provoke you, and you're going to have to learn the power of being alone. I've talked about it before that um, I believe a lot of what people call loneliness is just God asking people to be alone with him. Now, I realize that there are terribly lonely people in this world, But I do believe that there are people in this world that they feel this loneliness inside them and they don't get it and they don't understand, they misinterpret it. It's God just saying, would you be alone with me? Could you leave the crowd? Could you leave uh, the video screen? Could you leave everything? Could you just be alone with me? Can you learn the power of being alone? Jesus constantly, it says, he separated himself. He went alone into the mountain there to pray can you be alone? Another thing is, can you learn the principle of not being in a hurry when you're in his presence? Of not being in a hurry when you're in his presence. I talk to pastors a lot of times and I get asked, well, how do you write so much content? And I said, well, when the anointing of God comes upon you to write, don't stop it. See, most pastors are thinking, well, I need to write a message for Sunday. So when they write that message, they just put their pen down and they say they're done. If you're in that anointing, don't put your pen down. Just keep writing. Keep writing until God's done, not you're done. But we need to make sure that we're just not in a hurry. The Bible says, he that believes does not make haste. The Bible tells us in Habakkuk, well, what if the Lord tarries? Here's what I know, you've heard me say it before, just because we're in a hurry doesn't mean God is. So let's look at him. We've got to stay hungry. We've got to challenge the comfort zone. We have to hang out with people who provoke us. We have to learn the power of being alone, and we don't get in a hurry when it comes to his presence, and then we learn to live close to the throne. See, the throne room can be wherever you are, but it involves a constant awareness When there's a work of the throne, there's always a song in your heart you're singing. There's always a thought in your heart you're developing, and there's always a verse that you're meditating on. See, I can be anywhere, and I can have a song in my heart. I can have a thought in my head, and I can have a verse that I'm meditating on. So I can be sitting right in front of you, and we're carrying on a conversation, but I don't have to be distant from God because all three of those things can be happen. See, you have to learn the skills of the throne room. You have to learn to always have a song that you're singing, a thought that you're thinking, and a verse that you're learning. And if you learn those three keys, you're never far. And they're simple keys. You're never far. Another principle is uh, never let your ego outgrow your heart. Our society likes to either put us down or lift us up. God likes to grow us up. And the difference between being lifted up and grown up is when you're lifted up, it's about your ego. When you're being grown up, it's about your heart. Well, some of you just need to pause there and think that through because that is good. So if we're going to just really be in a position where God's at work in our lives, then we have to stay hungry. We have to challenge the comfort zone. We have to hang out with people uh, who provoke us. We have to learn the power of being alone. We have to understand we don't get in a hurry when we're in his presence. We live close to the throne room, and we never let our ego outgrow our heart and then lose the need to compete with others. You know, the more I do in ministry, the more I find that there are more people doing more stuff than me in ministry. I can't tell you how many phone calls I had just this last week, and people were telling me about groups of people, and I'm thinking, my goodness, I'd never even heard of this group. It is amazing what they're doing. And every time I'm just hearing, you know what? I can't compete. There are people out there that are doing bigger and better than me. But God doesn't ask me to do bigger and better than anyone. He asks me to be faithful. The standard isn't what is someone else doing? The standard is what does God ask you to do? But that's a hard thing because we live in a highly competitive society. And it says, even if you're my friend, I compete with you. But really, the Bible says, if you're my friend, I encourage you. So I have to encourage you to be better, to be bigger. To be more. You got to encourage me to be bigger, to be better, and to be more. Because ultimately, God's not going to ask me, Was I faithful to what God asked you to do? He's going to ask me, Was I faithful to what He asked me to do? So lose the need to compete with others. Another principle is live for the audience of one. Just live for the audience of one, live for the audience of God. There's always going to be people, there's always going to be opinions, there's always going to be politics. But you live for the audience of one. You choose to please him rather than please anyone or anything else. So let's get it. How do I truly decrease that he might increase? I stay hungry for God. I challenge the comfort zone. I hang out with people who provoke me. I learned the power of being alone. I'm not in a hurry when I'm in his presence. I live close to the throne. I never let my ego outgrow my heart. I lose the need to compete with others. I live for an audience of one. And I remember last principle. Success is situational. Significance is eternal. Success is situational. See, there are people in this world that are highly successful who are not highly significant. Now, success is a part of the journey of Christianity because in Joshua chapter one, it says in there, if you take the word of God and you process the word of God, then you will have good success. I love that phrase. It didn't say you'll have success. It said you'll have good success. Here's the thing. Not all success is good. The world tells us that's it. All success is good. All success isn't good. There's good success. And good success always helps others. And it points people to God. Because good success is about significance. Remember, success is what happens to you. Significance is what happens through you. Success is about down here. Significance is about up there. Success is about what people applaud. Significance is about what God applauds. So success is situational. Significance is eternal. If you ever have a choice between being successful or significant, choose significance. Because if you're significant, you'll always have success. But having success does not mean that you're significant. I'm telling you, there's so many layers to that. But let me just review. Stay hungry. Challenge the comfort zone. Hang out with people who provoke you. Learn the power of being alone. Don't be in a hurry when you're in his presence. Live close to the throne. Never let your ego outgrow your heart. Lose the need to compete with others. Live for the audience of one. And success is situational. Significance is eternal. I hope this helps you understand the math of leadership. If you'll plug those things in, I think you will find that your life will be growing at a high level, and when it's all said and done, you'll be able to point to the one who's bigger than you and give glory to him. Hey, again, if I could just have you go to my webpage, all my resources, all the list of books that I have, all of the information on my flash drive are there, uh, the lessons that I've taught over the last year. Also, if you go there, you can sign up for my Nashville uh, roundtable and then the Orlando roundtable and the Albuquerque. I just want to encourage you to come and to be a part of those. Thank you so much for joining me for another podcast.